John 16, 23 through 33. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed me, that I came from the Father, that I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly. And are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that you in me may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I want to ask a question to you guys. If you could live in any time period in all of the world, when would you choose to be alive? If you could choose anything, some of you guys, some of you guys have answers to that question. I was talking to Mark earlier this morning, and he, he told me that he, if he could live at any time, he'd live in the medieval period, which no one is with him on that, right? <laughs> is anyone with Mark on that, living in the medieval period? No. Sword fights, yeah. Here's the deal. We could, debate, we could debate about what's the best time to live all night. Right now is without dispute the best time to be alive. I'm just telling you, okay? One, one word, one word. iPhone. That, that, that changes everything. Internet, iPhone. Running water, air conditioning, heat that doesn't come from huddling around a fire. This is, this is, this is an amazing time to be alive. Technology is awesome and there's so many advances in the world that are awesome and there's certainly disadvantages to this time. But, but my opinion that I think is inarguable is that right now is the best time to be alive. In our passage tonight, Jesus is going to speak of all of the benefits and the advantages of being alive during a certain time period. He's going to say to his disciples, look, you've been with me, but let me tell you something. The best time to ever live is after my resurrection. 
The best time to be alive is after my departure. That's what Jesus is going to say in our text tonight. So if we're going to title this, I want you guys to kind of wrap your minds around the privileged position of a post-resurrection believer. The privileged position of a post-resurrection believer. In other words, living after the resurrection of Christ is a privileged position. It is a position in which you are benefited in a way that no one else over the course of history has benefited. If you live after the resurrection of Jesus, which all of us do, you are in a privileged position. As we break this down tonight, I want to give you five advantages for those living after the resurrection. Five advantages for those living after the resurrection. Living post-resurrection is a privileged position. Jesus tells us that in this passage, and what he breaks down for us are five advantages for those who are living after the resurrection. Number one, number one is an expanded opportunity in prayer. An expanded opportunity in prayer. This is a, all, if you're taking notes, you got a lot to write tonight, because we got Five points, and they're all very wordy. Okay, so number one is an expanded opportunity in prayer. Draw your attention to verses 23 and 24. Jesus says this. In that day, and when he says that, he's pointing to the point in time after his resurrection slash ascension. Remember, Jesus kind of sees all of this as one event. His death, resurrection, and ascension all culminating to life after his departure. So in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Jesus, in those two verses, looks to his disciples and he says that once I leave, you will have an expanded opportunity in prayer. You can pray after the resurrection of Jesus in a way that no one in the history of the world has ever been able to pray. And what Jesus points out for us here in this passage is that is that you can pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus looks to his disciples in verse 23 and he says, ask in my name. Ask the Father in my name and I will give it to you. But he he gives an interesting qualification in verse 24. He says, until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Up until this point of history, no one ever prayed in the name of Jesus. You know how we often close our prayers with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen? That finds its root in these passages. People in the Old Testament, they didn't pray that. There was no context for that in their mind. But after Jesus leaves, he says, look, when you pray, when you pray to the Father, you get to ask him for things in the name of his son. Because you know me and you have a personal relationship with me. And in telling them that, he gives them an expanded opportunity in prayer. Ask in my name. Ask in accordance with my name. Ask in accordance, and other texts are informed that the, some of the implications of this are asking in accordance with his will. He says, and it will be given to you. Now, we've talked about this a lot already in the upper room discourse that Jesus isn't saying, no matter what you ask for, whatever you ask for, it will be given to you. What he's saying is, ask for that, which is in accordance with who I am. Ask in my name. Ask in accordance with my will. And that will happen. Ask for it, and it will be given to you. 
It's interesting, we hear that and immediately we say that's a kind of a bait and switch of Jesus drawing us in like we can ask for anything that we want and he'll give it to us, but that's not really what it means. Really, it just means we can ask for whatever God wants for us, which he's going to give to us anyway, and and it instantly gets confusing. But I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 24 and look at the goal of all of this prayer. Why do we ask in the name of Jesus? Why will we receive? So that your joy may be made full. Jesus' agenda in giving us these instructions about prayer, to ask in the name of Jesus, to ask in accordance with who he is, to ask in accordance with his will, is that you would receive the fullness of joy. That's his desire. That your joy, the terminology here is that something, it's like a cup that's being filled to the brim. It couldn't be filled anymore. You have maximum joy because God is giving you what's best for you. Ask in his name. Ask and you will receive, Jesus says. It's a privileged position to be able to request things in the name of Jesus. A privilege that no one before this point in time could ever ask. So Jesus says, in that day, you will have an expanded opportunity in prayer. But that's not all he says. I want to move on to the second point tonight. Jesus, uh, the second advantage for those living after the resurrection is clarification on Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Clarification on, that's number two, jump ahead for me. Clarification on Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. What Jesus starts to indicate in verse 25 is that much of what he has said over the course of the past three chapters, as it's recorded in John, is kind of confusing information, especially for the disciples. He's giving them all sorts of prophecies and promises. He's telling them that he's going to die, that he's going to be buried, that he's going to be resurrected. And the disciples are, they're like, they're freaking out, right? They don't know what's happening. They're, They're confused. They're stressed. Jesus says, I know, I know this is a mess right now. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in, in figurative language. But an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Jesus says, everything that I've said so far is figurative. Now, What Jesus means when he says figurative, that that word that he uses indicates from the perspective of the disciples that it's very confusing. They're not really sure how to latch onto it because he's talking about things that they haven't experienced yet. So he's like, this is, this is complicated and it's difficult and it's, it's abstract because you haven't gone through it yet. But the hour is coming when this will all make sense. The hour is coming when Judas will betray me and you'll understand what I said in John chapter 13. The hour is coming when Peter will deny me and you'll understand what I said to him. The hour is coming when I will be put on trial, when I will be beaten, when I will be crucified, and you will understand all that I told you was coming. The hour is coming when I will be resurrected. And you won't remember until this time, but the hour is coming when you will remember that this is what I said I was going to do. And the hour is coming when I will be ascended to heaven. And right now that's difficult for you to comprehend, but the hour is coming when you will understand all that I have said to you. In fact, all that Jesus is saying, he's saying knowing that they're not going to grasp all of it until these events actually happen. So he says, look, 
This is confusing now, but it's going to make sense. Can I tell you that as a post-resurrection believer, when we get to read these stories about Jesus and all that he promises, they make sense to us in a way that they didn't even make sense to the disciples. We, we understand all that he's promising. When he says he's going to die, we know that he died. When he says that he's going to rise, we know that he rises. When he says he's going to be betrayed, we know that that happened. And so it all makes sense to us. The disciples were confused, but we as post-resurrection believers have a clarification on Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. All that he promised and all that he said it was going to happen. There's another advantage to being a post-resurrection believer. Number three is direct access to the Father. Direct access to the Father. Number three. Draw your attention to verses 26 through 28. Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. I want you to stop there for just a minute. Because we are post-resurrection believers, we have direct access to the Father. Jesus makes a really interesting statement here. He says, when you pray to me after I leave, you know what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is you pray to Jesus. Jesus goes and he asks the Father for you. The Father then gives the answer to Jesus. Jesus then gives the answer to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives the Father's answer to us. That's not how it works. Jesus says in verse 25, No, no, I'm not going to ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you. The Father himself hears you. The Father himself wants to interact with you. And you now have direct access to him. This, this is crazy. You as a post-resurrection believer have access to God in a way that you never did before. Old Testament saints, they didn't have direct access to God. You know how they got to God? It was through one man, through the high priest, who once a year went into the Holy of Holies and had access to God. That, that, that was how the people had access to God through the high priest. And even his access was very limited. We're referred to in the New Testament as, as saints and as priests. You, as a post-resurrection believer, have direct access to God. You can talk directly to God. And Jesus is like, look, after I leave, when you pray, I'm not going to stand there and translate for God. I'm not going to tell God what you want. God himself loves you. And God himself will hear you. He will listen to you. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father. And if coming to the world, I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. The Father hears you if you love Jesus. That's all that matters. He will hear your prayer. You have direct access to him. And that is yet another advantage to a post-resurrection believer. But there's a fourth one, number four. Number four in this passage is, this one's really tough and interesting, persecution for the name of of Jesus. Number four, persecution for the name of Jesus. 
persecution for the name of Jesus. Verses 31 and 32. Uh, Let's back up. Start at verse 29. Jesus' disciples, again, they're confused by Jesus telling them that they're still confused. Verse 29, it's like his disciples said, hey, you're, you're speaking plainly to us now. You're not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and we have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. So the disciples are like, look, Jesus, I know that you're promising that things are going to be more clarified later. I know you're promising that things are going to make sense to us later. We get it now, Jesus. We're tracking with you. We believe in you. We're with you. And Jesus says in verse 30, 31, do you now believe? Behold, An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. They've just professed that they believe in Jesus, that they're with Jesus. And Jesus says, in just about an hour, you're going to run from me. You're going to run away. You're going to leave me alone. You're not going to look like those who believe in me. Jesus is warning his disciples that even in their apparent faith, the persecution is coming. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. So much of scripture tells us that this is an advantage We've looked at Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where there's persecution for the name of Jesus and and the apostles are rejoicing that they would be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. It's an advantage that we get to suffer for the name of Jesus. That we have that privilege to suffer for him, for his name, We're not worthy of that. We're not worthy to die for the name of Jesus, but we have that opportunity. (laughs) But even the disciples, be, be careful. Jesus looks at his disciples and he warns them. He says, look, you think you're strong in your faith, but in just a few moments, you're going to run from me. And that uh, in, in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, we're told that the, the men come, Jesus is arrested. And you know what all his disciples do? They scatter. They run. They leave him alone. They're, they're so terrified that, that one guy, it's dictated in Mark chapter 14, verse 51, he runs away so fast, his clothes fall off. It's a really weird Bible verse, but he just runs off naked. He's so scared. <laughs> this is the aggression with which the, the disciples are running for their lives. They're not clinging to Jesus. They're sprinting the other direction. But just a few moments ago, they were like, we're with you. We believe now. We know all we need to know. We're good. Be careful. Be careful of placing too much confidence in your own belief. Recognize your weakness. The disciples didn't do that. And Jesus warns them about this here. They didn't have a humility in their approach. Know that you desperately need the grace of God to remain faithful to him. It's another advantage of a post-resurrection believer. Number five, last, is confidence in a conquering Savior. Confidence in a conquering Savior. Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. 
in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, everything that I've just said to you, I've said to you so that you can be at peace. Don't worry. Don't stress out. Be brave. Be strong. Be at peace. Because you know all of these truths. And because you're in the world, the world's going to be difficult. Persecution's coming your way. But guess what? I have overcome the world. We serve the Savior who has conquered sin and conquered death and conquered the world. And in that, we have peace. We have assurance. If you go back to John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus starts this whole section with the same statement. Be at peace. Rest assured. Be calm. And everything that he said can be summarized in that message. Life is difficult for a post-resurrection believer. Persecution is coming your way. There is opposition to the name of Jesus. There are so many advantages to living in the time in which we live. We have an expanded opportunity in prayer. We have clarification on Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. We have direct access to the Father. We get to suffer for the name of Jesus. And we have confidence in a Savior who has conquered death. So, your job is to remember those things. Meditate and think upon those things. In the midst of life, know that these are the advantages for you because you live after Jesus has died, resurrected, and is now with the Father. Father, I pray that you would help us to contemplate and remember these truths. Uh, These are important and yet difficult often for us to remember. So help us to meditate on these, not only in small groups, but, but daily on the advantages that you've given to those of us who are in the church after your resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.